Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 55 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes direct to your earbuds to give you some discussions about the latest research in the world of clinical dermatology to try to keep you up to date while you spend your time taking care of patients and doing other important things like that. <laughs> We've got some nice articles to discuss today, and I want to get started with an article from JAMA Pediatrics, showing my bias as a pediatric dermatologist, I suppose. It's called Association of Oral Corticosteroid Bursts with severe adverse events in children. Ugh. The authors include Tsung Chie Yao and Hui Ju Tsai out of Taiwan. I really don't know if that's how to pronounce their names, but man, I said it like I meant it. You did, with gusto. So, Michelle, <laughs> I think that most dermatologists have a love relationship with topical steroids, but kind of a love-hate relationship with systemic steroids. Mm -hmm. and I think that's accurate. <laughs> I certainly fall into that category. I often say that I think of prednisone kind of like I think about opioids. Opioids are good for acute pain, but bad for chronic pain, right? If somebody fractures their leg, you probably want to give them opioids. But if somebody has had low back pain for two years, I'm not a pain specialist, but my feeling is that you should not give that person opioids. And I feel like the same kind of thing can be said for systemic steroids. If somebody has like bad allergic contact dermatitis because they walked through a pile of burning poison ivy, then I think steroids are appropriate. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to give it for their atopic dermatitis or psoriasis or whatever. Mm -hmm. I agree. And my personal feeling is that systemic steroids are overused in our society. And so... I'm always looking for ways to hate on systemic steroids. <laughs> and I found a way back in episode nine, you might recall, that where we discussed an article that said that even short doses, five days, like a methylprednisolone dose pack of PO steroids carry significant risks in adults, increasing the risk of subsequent sepsis, venous thromboembolism, and major orthopedic fracture. By the way, okay. another recent study apparently showed that they also increase the risk of GI bleeding and heart failure in adults. Yeah. And so this study that we're going to discuss today out of Taiwan talks about how even short courses of systemic steroids in kids can also have bad outcomes. Wah, wah, wah. So short courses defined as less than 14 days of PO steroids, and they increase the risk of sepsis, GI bleeding, and pneumonia in children. That is the upshot. So this That's was the a, upshot. That is the upshot. Here's <laughs> here are the details. This is a big national database study. So apparently, like 99% of the Taiwanese population is enrolled in this national healthcare database. 4.5 million children were included, and during the study period 2013 to 2017, 23% of them, 23% of these 4.5 million children, received a single short course of systemic steroids. Wow. In order to make their data sort of as clean as possible, they included only patients who had a single dose of those of a short-term steroid over that study period. 
Oof. Patients served as their own controls. Kind of interesting. So the authors looked at the patients' lives 90 days prior to the steroid burst and 90 days after the steroid burst and sort of compared the risks of things like sepsis and GI bleeding in the 90 days before and the 90 days after to kind of up with their data. They also looked at the risk of syncope as a negative control. They didn't explain that super closely, but my understanding then is that you wouldn't expect steroids to increase the risk of syncope. And if they found that the risk of syncope was in fact increased, then maybe their methods were not entirely accurate. But they did find that in the first 30 days after your steroid burst, the incident rate ratio, so basically your increased risks were 1.4 for GI bleeding. So in compared to... If, if they were the same, so if your risk of GI bleeding before and after steroids was identical, then that number would be 1.0, but it's 1.4, so your risk of having GI bleeding after steroids is increased. It's 2.0 for sepsis, 2.2 for pneumonia, so that's in the first 30 days after your steroid burst, and the first, so after 30 days, 31 to 90 days after your steroid burst, your risk of sepsis goes back to baseline, but your risk of GI bleeding and pneumonia are slightly elevated at 1.1. Mm. So they still have effects even three months after your short burst of steroids, albeit a low one. And it's important to keep in mind that the overall incidence of all of these things was still low. These are otherwise healthy children who don't otherwise have a lot of comorbidities. But I think that helps us try to keep stuff like this in mind, like systemic steroids when they're appropriate. I think go ahead and use them because, again, the incidence ratio of things like pneumonia and GI bleeding in kids is still pretty low, but it does increase their risk. They did say that in this database, the most common indication, including 65% of prescriptions to prescribe a steroid burst, were in two categories, acute respiratory tract infections and, mm -hmm. quote, allergic conditions. Hmm. So to break it down further, the top 10 they have here, urticaria a category called contact dermatitis and other eczema, which I think is kind of unfair because, as <laughs> I said, I would use them for severe forms of allergic contact dermatitis, but would definitely not use them for, like, atopic dermatitis, so that's tough to parse. Mm -hmm. Upper respiratory tract infections, bronchitis and bronchiolitis, sinusitis, asthma, allergic rhinitis, tonsillitis, laryngitis and tracheitis, and nasopharyngitis. As a dermatologist, I don't treat a lot of those things. Um, but I treat some of them and I think I've explained my philosophy. <laughs> Michelle, your <laughs> husband, Mr. Dr. Tarbox is an allergist. Yes. So he treats some of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it sort of kind of clarifies some of the things about the different organ systems we treat, right? So like, you know, Mr. Dr. Tarbox being an asthma doctor and allergist and immunologist, sometimes he's treating patients who can't breathe unless they get the inflammation under control. And like anything in medicine, I think you do have to weigh the pros and cons and benefits and risks of any treatment. But it is food for thought that the even short steroid courses can increase risks of relatively significantly important side effects. So I think always something to think about. I think I once asked him how many times he's prescribed systemic steroids for seasonal allergies, and he held up a big zero with his hands. Yeah. Zero times. <laughs> Um, and the authors of this study do note some clinical trials that showed no efficacy of corticosteroid bursts for acute lower respiratory tract infections and sinusitis. So I don't treat those things, but there you have it. 
And sometimes I think when we read studies like this, we're tempted to say, well, it's those silly emergency room and urgent care doctors who are prescribing all these things. They really need to get their stuff together. But in <laughs> fact, the top five specialties to prescribe these steroid bursts in the study did not include ED docs, but did include dermatologists. And just a brief reminder that might be worth a bell ring about, there we go, the risks of long-term steroid use, which I think are pretty well known and accepted. So this, the bell, by the way, is known affectionately as the pimping bell and out is supposed to highlight items that we find especially question-worthy. So if you're a resident, someone might question you. If you're an attending, consider asking your residents questions like this. So long-term steroid use, of course, associated with Cushingoid features, gastrointestinal bleeding, infections, glaucoma, hyperglycemia, cardiovascular disease, and osteoporosis were the ones they mentioned here. There are probably a few others as well, um, like aseptic necrosis of the femoral head is one that yeah. always comes to mind. That one always scares the bejesus out of me. And muscle weakness. Had a patient with pemphigus vulgaris on long-term steroids who ended up just being weak. A lot of risks with systemic steroids long-term, but we all know that. But here you go. Even a short course, also risky. That is, like I said, food for thought. Speaking of food, um, I'm going to now review something about holistic dermatology, an evidence-based review of modifiable lifestyle factors, associations with dermatologic disorders. The chief authors are Sophia Hu and Robert Delavalle, um, and they're out of the University of Colorado. And then you had also highlighted the um, one of the other authors' names, Melissa Laughter. I think it was because that's kind of a fun name, potential candidate for our most fun names uh, at the Dermies later on in the year. Uh, so this is a really nice article. It was looking over the ways that dermatologic conditions can be prevented or mitigated by these modifiable lifestyle factors, including diet, sleep, exercise, stress, alcohol, or smoking. And they wanted to look at well-controlled studies, so they were doing a very nice review, a little systematic re review using literature search on PubMed, Cochrane, and Web of Science. And they were looking at these different terms to try to see what kinds of studies have been done, looking at the relationships between these potentially modifiable risk factors and the fate of dermatologic disease. The best relationships that they found were between alcohol, diet, stress, smoking, and illicit drug use. The sixth variable that they looked at, sleep, did not have as strong of evidence, but also had some nice um, articles that they reviewed. So I thought they did a very nice job with this article. There's a couple of areas I'll go into in greater depth, but of course we do want to talk about the fact that holistic medicine and integrative dermatology are ways that people are treated like as a whole person. So it looks at treating the human body as a whole, trying to promote better overall health and improving the overall health of the body and also kind of pulling those dermatologic conditions along with it. Uh, I have to say, sometimes I'm offended by that definition because I feel like that implies that my version of medicine does not take into account the person's whole body. And I like to think that it does. Um, but I mean, I like the, the idea. 
I, I like the idea too. And, you know, I think it's not necessarily saying one's good and one's bad. They're different and they can be used complementarily um, to help improve the overall health of the patients. So they talk about the fact that the skin may potentially be like a reflection of the general health of the patient and treating conditions kind of from the inside out may address the underlying causes of different inflammatory dermatologic diseases and help potentially prevent recurrence. Uh, they thought about the possibility of you know, herbal therapies, acupuncture, holistic medicine in the past have been used. Uh, there's also a focus on environmental factors, nutritional factors, the gut microbiome, like we spoke about previously in the episode looking at alopecia areata and the fecal microbiota transplants that we looked at a couple articles ago. My temples remain white despite my frequent imbibation of poop since our last recording. <laughs> um, they also talked about stress and potentially looking at how to improve the function of the immune system. Now, integrative medicine is somewhat underappreciated and sometimes met with resistance in Western society. And we do need to think about the possibility of side effects of some of the therapies. And we want to look for scientific uh, research that can actually show evidence-based improvement by putting into practice some of these mediators. There are also barriers because a lot of these measures are not covered by insurance. Uh, healthful foods might be expensive or difficult to access for some patient populations. And so they advocate here that the dermatologist can be a um, sort of mitigating force in the, in the whirlwind of modern life and help promote good health in their patients. So the first variable they looked at was alcohol. Um, and we've reviewed some articles in the past. Uh, one of my favorite ones was the Don't Tito's in Tan that looked at potentially an increased skin cancer in patients who had increased alcohol consumption. They did actually talk about that article here in this review. So they found some studies that show a dose-dependent relationship between alcohol consumption and both melanoma and basal cell carcinoma. They also suggest a link between heavy drinking and higher rates of sunburn that might lead to skin cancer. We talked about the fact that, you know, one of the correlations that came forward in the literature a while ago was white wine and skin cancer. A uh, pool pounder, the as pool you are pounders, so fond yes. of calling them. <laughs> because they're, you know, they can be chilled and they're light and, you know, drinking a, a lovely Cabernet on a cold wintry day by a fireplace is very different than drinking a big, bold, warm Cabernet out on a pool deck in 106 degree weather like we had here in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas yesterday. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it was a little warm, but it's okay. It got cooled off in the, in the evening. They also talked about alcohol consumption may potentially increase skin permeability and decrease carotenoid antioxidant substances that might cause a more rapid increase in erythema following UV radiation. There's also potentially an association between binge and heavy drinking with conditions such as psoriasis, discoid eczema, rosacea, and porphyria cutanea tarda, along with post-adolescent acne and superficial cutaneous infections. Finally, I figured out why I still get some pimples. <laughs> you can blame it on the Merlot. Um, liver disease can also be associated with chronic alcohol abuse, and it can modulate estrogen and bile salt metabolism, so patients can develop stigmata of hyperestrogenism like spider angiomata or erythema of the palms or pruritus due to the bile metabolism. And potentially alcohol abuse can predispose to necrotizing wound infections, cellulitis, and delays in wound healing. There are potential immunosuppressive effects, malnutrition can occur, as well as changes in lipid metabolism. And this can happen with both acute and chronic abuse of alcohol. The nutritional deficiencies can include zinc and vitamin C, which can contribute to impaired wound healing and weak mucosal barriers, as well as decreased or altered immunity. And alcoholism can also cause malabsorption, so patients might have 
different kinds of nutritional disorders such as ang angular stomatitis, glossitis, perifollicular hemorrhage, pellagra, and ecchymosis. So not great news for the enophiles amongst us. Um, perhaps... No, but I feel like they're not also highlighting the literature that shows that moderate drinking has been associated with various health benefits. There have been articles that also point to potentially the polyphenolic compounds that can be present in wine um, and are present in grapes. In fact, we talked in episode 51 about grape extract being sort of similar to heliocare and helping prevent acute erythema from UV radiation. So that's one of those things that hopefully you can find some balance in, but just avoid the deep end or overindulging. Diet is another area that they looked at in this paper, and we've talked about a lot of articles on Dermosphere looking at the interactions between diet and skin disease. All the way back in episode three, there was an article we reviewed that showed that maybe a pro-inflammatory diet didn't really mitigate psoriasis risk, but then we looked at other articles that showed potentially that if you gave um, mice, for example, in episode 21, a Western diet, they got a psoriasis-like eruption, and that actually won the Dermosphere Award for the best figure because it had the little mice and like the cute fast food icons together. It was actually kind of adorable. Master um, Shake. Master Shake, you remember. Um, we talked about diet and acne in episodes 33 and 34. And we talked about fad diets associated with pregopigmentosa in episode 6. And finally, cutaneous antioxidant slowing aging in episode 36. So lots of connections between diet and inflammatory skin disease. Uh, some of the things that can be possible mediators of this can include, specifically for dairy, the presence of growth hormones in milk, um, also, anabolic steroids are sometimes used to raise animals non-organically and potentially carbohydrate content. The levels of serum insulin and insulin-like growth factor, and um, those can both be increased by dairy consumption as well as from high glycemic index foods. Those can augment sebum production and increase androgen synthesis, so that might play a role in acne. Uh, the Western diet does have a high glycemic index, and that can also cause damage through a process called glycation, where you kind of end up sticking sugars onto collagen fibers, and that can cause degradation into something called advanced glycation end products, appropriately abbreviated as age, which can cause stiffness and reduced skin elasticity. They also talked about the fact that preparing methods for food that can increase kind of the pro-inflammatory content of the food, like grilling, frying, or roasting, can accelerate the signs of aging, as can um, having a diet that's poor in those good things that we're supposed to get from plants, fruits, and vegetables. Those antioxidant things such as vitamins C and E, beta carotene, selenium, isoflavones, polyphenols, curcumin, lycopene, and grapeseed extract, like we talked about in episode 51, along with elagallic acid, which can be obtained in green tea. Uh, diet rich in meats and fats have been shown to increase the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. And psoriasis-like conditions also can be both associated with other comorbidities, such as dyslipidemia and cardiovascular disease, as well as may potentially be worsened by diets heavy and things that could worsen those conditions and may improve with diets that decrease that kind of inflammatory content like a Mediterranean-style diet. So those patients with psoriasis on a Mediterranean-style diet having lower markers of inflammation. So, so far, it's bad news. No alcohol, no meats and cheeses. Let's I talk know. about... I just need I to eat kale-wrapped broccoli, apparently. Right? Well, buckle up, because now we're going to talk about exercise. So exercise um, is healthful for our whole body, um, so long as you don't overdo it. You don't get, you know, the church of CrossFit. Uh, some people are a little bit overzealous and not as 
not as gentle on their joints as we'd like to have them be. And in fact, there is a dermatologic entity called CrossFit toe, which is from the lateralized movements of that particular exercise style. Don't the forget role... golfer's purpura, which golfer's we discussed purpura? in episode nine, I think. Good job. That's a great callback. So they talk here about regular to moderate intensity exercise protecting against oxidative stress mediated by those reactive oxygen species by helping maintain redox red balance basically in the in the body. So that is kind of balancing the body more towards antioxidant. You can also help decrease chronic inflammation, which can cause collagen fragmentation and disorganization when it is present. And you can potentially also have increased blood flow to the skin, which can deliver better nutrients as well as oxygen. You can have better production of anti-inflammatory mediators such as glutathione and superoxide dismutase with exercise. And you can also help carry away waste products and eliminate free radicals. A fun and interesting thing they pointed out was a study that showed that exercise significantly increases dorsal skin perfusion in patients with diabetes and modulates prostaglandins, nitric oxide, and endothelium-derived hyperpolarizing factor vasodilatory pathways. So that was a lot of information there. But I wonder if that doesn't play some role in the presentation of scleroedema on the backs of gentlemen usually that have bad diabetes, and maybe it's an imbalance in those factors that's contributing to that presentation. You can also, of course, decrease your production of cortisol with exercise, and that can help to decrease acne breakouts and as well protect your collagen from the nasty side effects of hypercortisolemia to, to kind of maintain that nice skin homeostasis. So, so now we have to exercise more, eat less meat and cheese, and drink less. So good yeah, news. Yeah, but please don't take away my illicit drugs. Dang it, you read my mind. So speaking of illicit drugs, we all know drugs of abuse can show cutaneous signs. Patients can inject them, they can snort them, they can get marks on their skin from them. Uh, they go over these kind of drug by drug. So Cocaine is a white crystalline powder, which we probably all know. I didn't know it could, I knew it could be inhaled, um, and people sometimes, I guess, they smoke it somehow. Um, uh, could be orally ingested, which I didn't know, and can be mixed with water for injection, which is weird. You need to come uh, to more of my parties. <laughs> So the, you know, dermatologic manifestations that are specific to the abuse of the drug can include cuts and burns on the lips from pipes where people are smoking it, matarosis from the hot steam, and palmar digital hyperkeratosis. You can also have systemic adverse drug reactions such as AGEP and Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and something I'd never heard about before called snorter warts. Do you know what a snorter wart is, Luke? Just because I read this article. It's so gross. So these are warts caused by the transmission of HPV person to person by snorting cocaine on dollar bills. What this made me want to do is never have another dollar bill, bill in my possession ever again, because gross. Um, cocaine abuse has also been linked to vasculitis and formication, which we all kind of have probably unfortunately had to treat, as yes, well as tactile though I do think it's Sorry, you said skin picking at excoriations. Yes, I think it's helpful to remember, especially if you're a resident, that you're used to thinking of the levamisole that's sometimes an adulterant in cocaine as causing vasculitis, but actually just plain old cocaine by itself can do it too. So keep that in mind. And did you know that there is an approved medical use of cocaine, Luke? Yeah, in the eyes, right? Well, I guess there may be two then. The one that I was thinking of is they put it in nasal packing for rhinoplasties because it's such a potent vasoconstrictor. Yeah, that's... That's why I prescribe it for myself. <laughs> okay. So speaking of levamisol, it is an antihelminthic drug. It's a common contaminant in cocaine. 71% of U.S. cocaine has some level of levamisol. 
And although cocaine is, like you said, possibly by itself linked to vasculitis, lavambosol-induced vasculitis can occur with crack cocaine, inhaled cocaine, or anything that's been contaminated with lavambosol. Heroin, um, a synthesized opiate from morphine, can be injected, inhaled, smoked, or snorted, and patients can develop urticaria, intense pruritus of the face and genital region, which I didn't realize was a specific localization of pruritus with this drug. And then interestingly enough, penile ulcers after injection into the dorsal penile vein. So I really went into a rabbit hole reading about this because I was like, are people really that insane that they're doing this? And I actually found a really interesting article from Psychology Today that actually looked at all of the literature mentions of genital drug injection with bad effect. And so they had a grand total of three cases with cocaine in the literature, four with heroin, three with meth, one with buprenorphine, and one with methadone, that it had relatively catastrophic uh, outcomes for the gentlemen involved. The literature suggested that this was mostly an access problem because patients could find a vein there, um, but also potentially it was a way that they would conceal their drug use. Uh, other associations with using the heroin and the opiates can potentially be pemphigus vegetans, fixed drug, toxic epidermal necrolysis, and acanthosis nigricans. So Methan I do think it's helpful to remember that illicit drugs can do things like cause pruritus and SJS and AGEP and things, because if you have a patient with those issues, you might not necessarily think to ask about illicit drugs or do a tox screen, but there it is. And, and penile ulcers being a potential presenting sign of drug use I never would have thought about before. Um, methamphetamine has the euphoric and hallucinatory effects, can be snorted, smoked, injected, or taken orally, can produce xerosis, pruritus, body odor, which I didn't realize was a side effect of that, um, premature aging, hyperhidrosis, acne, and lichenoid drug eruptions. There's something called ecstasy pimples, which can happen from the intake of ecstasy. It's an acne form eruption that occurs without comedones, and it looks like perioral dermatitis. So when you have difficult to treat perioral dermatitis, you have to remember to ask them about ecstasy. And then, of course, track marks on the arms can be, the caused, uh, can be caused by injection of illicit drugs. We all know smoking is bad for your skin. We know that it makes you look older. It can stimulate dermal met matrix metalloproteinases, and it can downregulate TGF-beta and cultured fibroblasts, which impairs wound healing. You can get peripheral vasoconstriction, local dermal ischemia, and you can also have problems once you get that post-ischemic reperfusion by the release of reactive oxygen species, in addition to the reactive oxygen species that the cigarettes produce themselves. So this can accelerate UV photoaging and delay wound healing. It can also increase oncogenesis, and you can see proto-oncogenic effects of cigarette smoking because you have increased mitotic activity in, of basal cells and hypertrophic epithelial cells in the epidermis. We also know that patients have trouble with microvasculature and nicotine and um, the microvascular dermal injury can damage the hair papilla and cause DNA damage of hair follicles. So we can end up with a worsening of hair loss with this. An imbalance of the follicular protease antiprotease system also can potentially worsen hydrogenitis suppurativa which is thought to be a pathomechanistic reason why smoking can increase the severity of that disease. And smoking can also increase the risk of skin ulcers and diabetic skin ulcers, as well as decrease the um, immune response. This is a pimpable thing very much so that smoking decreases the efficacy of anti-malarial drugs used in the management of inflammatory skin disease. You can like also, lupus. exactly. Um, and the cutaneous manifestations of systemic lupus erythematosus, as well as psoriasis, can be worsened because of cigarette smoking. They actually have even had a case report of e-cigarettes with vaping linked to worsening of discoid lupus erythematosus. And then finally, stress. We know that stress 
makes the um, immune system behave abnormally. We know it can worsen psoriasis, acne, and atopic dermatitis, possibly through modulation of the hypothalamic pituitary axis, and may act as a trigger or impact the severity of any of those inflammatory diseases, possibly by changing the presentation of corticotropin-releasing hormone. And they found a study that looked at stress is an important factor in the pathogenesis of up to 90% of acne cases and a significant number of atopic derms. Sleep was the one variable they didn't find a strong association with, but they did think about the fact that it can also impact the hypothalamic pituitary axis. They also had a study that showed that 42 hours of sleep deprivation causes a significant increase in the levels of interleukin-1 beta signaling, which causes inhibition of collagen production and compromise of the skin barrier. It also will potentially see um, a decrease of synthesis of types 1 and 2 collagen, which are usually seen in normal, healthy skin. Now, we all know we look... Hours. 42, 42 hours. 42 hours of sleep deprivation. I Sounds feel like... Sounds like intern My interleukin levels would go up after like 18 hours of sleep deprivation. <laughs> I feel like, you know, that's a, a justification for free Botox for residents because they're having impaired wound healing and, and difficulty with uh, skin health because of their sleep deprivation. Uh, so in conclusion, basically, all of the factors they looked at had some evidence that they impact skin health and skin inflammatory diseases, with the strongest associations being found with alcohol, diet, stress, smoking, and illicit drug use. And we learned about ecstasy pimples and penile ulcerations with drug abuse. Yes, so I should spend all my time exercising, sleeping, meditating, and eating lentils, I think. I think that would be a, the, so basically you need to be like a monk I think you know like th that would be great for your skin I, th I think so I don't know if I've ever seen a monk with bad skin <laughs> I haven't either so <laughs> all right I'm going to talk about a little case report discussing one of our favorite drugs what drug would that be dupilumab oh man we love dupilumab so this is um a case report from cutis and it's called Dupilumab for the Treatment of Lichen Planus. And the authors include Bobak Pausti and Candris Heath out of Temple University in Philadelphia. So, as you might guess, this is a case report of a patient with refractory lichen planus who got way better with the Dupilumab. Woo! So he was 52, and he had bad itchy lichen planus his itch was a nine out of ten he said and he had three biopsies that were all consistent with lichen planus he had tried topical steroids topical calcineurin inhibitors prednisone so he probably yeah, increased his risk back. of major orthopedic <laughs> fracture and venous thromboembolism and sepsis also tried acetretin didn't get any improvement so then they switched him to dupilumab and at his next follow-up, which was after four administrations of the medication, so assuming it was the standard dose that was using it for about two months, the patient was remarkably improved clinically, and his itch was down to a 1 out of 10. Hooray! Woohoo! So lichen planus. Here's potentially some pimpable stuff. What causes lichen planus? Well, like many things, we don't really know, but there's a postulation that maybe Th1 cells cause CD8 T-cells to show up that attack the keratinocytes in the basal layer. So this destruction of keratinocytes in the basal layer, obviously something we can see histopathologically with the interface dermatitis. See what I remember from residency there. I'm so proud of you. And I seem to remember some kind of fast-fast ligand interaction also being important, though they didn't mention it in this paper. So as part of this mechanism, TNF-alpha shows up, 
and it promotes cytokines, including IL-6, which apparently has been found to be elevated in the serum of patients with lichen planus, which I didn't know, and that the levels of IL-6 seem to correspond with disease severity. IL-6 can apparently lead to Th2 switching. So isn't it interesting? Th1 responses kind of lead to an increase in the cytokine that can lead to Th2 switching. Isn't the body an amazing thing? Very interesting. So we know, of course, that dupilumab antagonizes IL-4 and 13, which are Th2 cytokines. So perhaps cytokines like that are more important than we thought in lichen planus. We know that dupilumab has been reported to treat a bunch of things, including paragonodularis and chronic pruritus. And we've also discussed a bunch of things that dupilumab can treat on this podcast, including hand dermatitis in episode 5, alopecia areata in episode 26, bolus pemphigoid, episode 29, eczematous eruption of aging, episode 34, and Grover's disease in episode 51. <laughs> So here's another something that dupilumab can do. And one thing I really enjoyed about this article is that they explained how they got dupilumab approved through insurance for this patient who had Medicaid. Ooh. So they useful. said his primary diagnosis was listed as lichen planus. And in their documentation, they clearly stated that all commonly accepted treatments were attempted, except for off-label treatments, and failed. And the plan was to treat him with dupilumab as if he had a severe form of atopic dermatitis. Dupilumab was approved with this documentation with a minimal copay. That's amazing. I know. So maybe Pennsylvania just has much more liberal Medicaid than I have experienced in the places where I've worked, but I appreciate the authors and the journal for publishing that technique as well. So it's kind of like you... a cheat code, you know, like in a video game, it's like up, up, down, down, left, right, you know, right select down. start. Yep. So <laughs> if you've got a patient with lichen planus and you want to try dupilumab, maybe you can uh, just clearly state that you've tried everything and you'd like to treat them as if they have severe atopic dermatitis and also cite this study. I love it. I think that's amazing. All right. Well, Luke, do you want to hear about a kind of interesting diagnostic technique? Since we're sharing pearls, this is a great pearl, I think. How could I say no to that? I mean, you know, so this is a nice uh, little letter. This is really a very well done letter to the editor from the JEADV. So the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. Let us never forget our roots. We were syphilologists first. However, we're not going to talk about that infectious transmissible disease that's spread by close contact. Instead, we're going to talk about fungus. Luke, you're a fun guy. I was waiting for that joke. But you're, <laughs> you're right. I am. So this is going to be dermatoscopy in tinea capitis. Can it provide clues for the responsible fungi? And as you all know, I'm a self-proclaimed dermoscopy nerd. So this was right up my alley. The chief authors are Dr. Lekas and Dr. Sori Tiro. And they're out of Aristotle University in Thessaloniki, um, Greece, which is pretty cool. So they are from Greece. So some lovely Grecian dermatologists wrote this letter to the editor. Greece is about the word. Grace is the word, is the word. Don't give me a song cue. All right. So tinea capitis, as we all know, can happen uh, in children and adults. It can be kind of overwhelming for a child to have a like blade come at them for a culture. We had a very nice article that we looked at back in, I'm not sure which episode, which one was the toothbrush um, culture for tinea capitis? Do you remember? 
I'll look it up. But I remember one where we talked about using bacterial swabs rather than scraping hairs into a urine oh cup. yeah maybe the toothbrush is what we do i think you're right it was the swab uh so children can sometimes be a little bit overwhelmed by some of the diagnostic techniques that we might use to help figure out um if they're going to have a different kind of tinea on their scalp it was episode, episode 26 26 yeah and uh, you guys should publish your toothbrush use because i haven't actually seen that in other institutions oh interesting we should get that done. Um, so we're talking here now about the dermatoscopy because dermatoscopy can be a very useful diagnostic tool. And I find if you like look at the parents with the dermatoscope in front of the child and show them that it doesn't hurt and it's not scary, I even like let the kids look through the dermatoscope. They are a lot less afraid of it when you take it to look at their scalp because they're used uh, to you anything. Do the same thing. Yep. They're used to anything lit coming towards them, being placed immediately into a body orifice that they don't enjoy, like their ears or their nose. And so kind of showing them that it goes on the skin and letting them be a little familiar with it helps to overcome some of that fear. So you can what, also actually hand them the dermatoscope and let them play with it a little, but just be sure they don't drop it. Yes, do that at your own peril. I actually have a special dermatoscope that's been loved until it was real. The light still works, but the polarizer fell out, so I just let them play with that one. Um, it is the one that was volunteered as tribute. So, anywho, um, they looked at 41 cases of microscopic trichophyte, um, sorry, tinea capitis, and micros microscopic, I think, being... Um, microspora species. So just to make sure that's clear. So microspora causing tinea capitis and 18 cases caused by trichophyton uh, type fungus. And so they looked at all of these and tried to clarify the different findings into categories so they could see what might be more relevant in terms of your dermoscopic findings. So they found that for microsporum, which is typically going to make an ectothrix, the chief that means findings, outside of the hair. Yes, outside the hair. The chief findings were Morse code hairs. Morse code hairs have light areas alternating with the normal color of the hair. And that's thought to be, be here because arthrokinidia are growing around the outside of the hair shaft. And so the lighter colored areas of the Morse code hair is where you have condensations of the fungal hyphae. And then the dark areas, which would be like the dots in the Morse code, are where the normal hair is predominant. So Morse code hairs zigzag hairs, which are sort of being steered by the fungus on the outside of the hair shaft, and then a combination of white and yellow scale, which they postulized was because serum makes a yellow scale and sebum makes a yellow scale, and those things can be worsened with um, inflammation. And the ectothrix tinea capitae tends to be more inflammatory than the endothrix tinea capitae, and so you will end up with more yellow and white scale for that. Uh, so I don't know if this is true, but it'll help me to remember if it's an ectothrix, maybe it's more inflammatory because the fungi are more likely to be in contact with your skin rather than closeted in your hair follicle. That makes sense to me. I or think, um, shaft, I guess. and I think I'm not sure if all of the microsporum species are, um, zoophilic, but I know a lot of them kind of are. So that might be part of it too. I think that, and, and also some of them can be fluorescent, not all of them. I wish they were all fluorescent. It would make everything so much easier. Sure um, would. Come so on, no. get your... Get I know. Together, microsporum. Get your stuff together, dang it. Um, when they looked at the trichophyton induced tinea capitis, they were more likely to have corkscrew hairs, comma hairs, or black dots. And those are caused by the proliferation of arthrokinidian fungal elements within the hair shaft itself. And that can cause a bending of the hair that is distorted in its growth because of the presence of fungi. So the comma hairs and the corkscrew hairs are basically the same hair, but just broken a little earlier for the comma hair. And then the black dot is broken right at the skin surface as a cadaverized hair. And so I thought that that was a nice way to sort of 
put together those findings and make sense out of them. Um, they had some nice pearls as well that um, I think was good. So the trichophyton species mostly causes endothrix, but there's exceptions. And as we know, the ABD loves those exceptions. So there are three fungi in the trichophyton species group that can cause both endothrix and ectothrix. And those include T. varicosum, T. mentagrophytes, and T. magnini. Magninii, is it magninii? Those can cause ectothrix. And so those are kind of our are sort of in, in theater we call those a swing like so that's somebody who can be in multiple different roles and they kind of fill in for people when they're absent so i guess those three are kind of the swings they can be endothrix and ectothrix and so i thought that was very nice they um show the potential for the use of this non-invasive easily accessible technology which i actually also love to put photos of in the medical record just to monitor patient um, improvement and also just kind of document their condition but it this is definitely consistent with what i've seen where the microsporum species do tend to be much more inflammatory and of course have a nice ectothrix appearance that sort of steers the hairs like a little bumper car on the outside versus making it curl on the inside due to the distortion from the hair follicle being filled up with hyphae. And there's some data that the microsporum species respond better to griseofulvin and the trichophyton species respond better to terbinafine. So hypothetically, you could use this to direct your treatment, though I honestly would probably just treat everybody with terbinafine. Anywho, <laughs> um, but I always love it when the dermoscopy findings have a satisfying explanation, like why the Morse code, Morse code hairs look like that and why the curly hairs look like the way they do. So I thought it was neat. I thought so too. I thought this was a great article. It's a very actionable pearl you can use in clinic today if you've got a case of tinea capitis and, you know, take pictures and teach it. It's awesome. So kudos to the authors. Um, and I was very pleased to have this to review. I would next like to discuss a short research letter out of the JAD that emphasizes a lot of what we already know or we thought we knew, but again, this sort of validates it, about propranolol and hemangiomas. So the research letter is called Propranolol for the Treatment of Ulcerated Infantile Hemangiomas, a Prospective Study. Authors include Yi Ji and Siwan Chen. The authors are out of China. And this is a multi-center, prospective, but not placebo-controlled, trial of propranolol in 85 babies with ulcerated hemangiomas. So remember, not placebo-controlled, but I actually am not sure it would be ethical to have a placebo group since we already know propranolol works so well. So the hemangiomas themselves had an excellent or good response in 39%, that was the excellent responders, and 54%, the good responders, and of the patients at week 24 with a total good response, good or better response rate of 93%. So propranolol works for hemangiomas. I think we knew that, though, again, remember, no placebo group, so we don't actually know what the hemangiomas would have done had they been untreated. But propranolol's efficacy in hemangiomas is pretty well described. If you were a younger baby and if you had a smaller hemangioma, you would get a better response. So remember to refer patients early for propranolol or if you prescribe it, start them early. They did say that the ulcerations lasted about five and a half weeks, generally, after they presented and were diagnosed. So this is very much in line with the study we discussed just in our last episode, which talked about ulcerated hemangiomas. And the ulcerations just last a long time, like five weeks, with wound care, with timolol, with propranolol, with multimodal therapy. It just take a long time to get better. 
Uh, the authors of this study do say, quote, a slower dose escalation or a lower maintenance dose of propranolol should be considered in ulcerated infantile hemangiomas, which is definitely in line from the study we discussed in our last episode, which said that you might want to keep your propranolol to one milligrams per kilogram per day while the hemangioma is ulcerated uh, before increasing it to two milligrams per kilogram per day, which is sort of the standard dose. Awesome. That is all. Nothing I thought was especially groundbreaking. And I do like studies that kind of challenge things we think we know, like we discussed last time on about Timolol and hemangiomas, where it didn't actually seem to be effective. (laughs) But I thought I should also give some love to articles that reaffirm things that we think we know, because then we can feel more confident in knowing them. And uh, proper kudos to the authors for doing stuff like that, because I think in science in general, there's a tendency to shy away from stuff that is thought to be already known, well-known properly. Awesome, Luke. I think that was a great review of that article. I'm going to have a brand new condition, I think, to present to you. Have you ever heard, before reading the articles for this week, of Rosacea fulminans herpeticum? I had not. I think it's because it didn't exist before, but these authors have convincingly presented a case of it. So this is a case report, and this is out of the JAD case reports. The authors are Aaron Tisak who is a um, Bachelor of Science young person, and Lori Cohen out of Detroit, Michigan. And so they here present a case of a patient who presented with rosacea fulminans herpeticum. Rosacea fulminans was superimposed herpetic infection. And the authors are out of Wayne State University, which is a lovely place. So rosacea fulminans, as we know, is a rare disorder. Patients have the sudden onset of really severe coalescing papules and plaques, a background of erythema, and sometimes even sinus formation. This ding, ding. Oh, yeah, good point. I got excited. Um, This typically affects women between the ages of 20 and 40 years old. And it was initially thought to be related to acne, but more recent evidence shows that it's more rosacea spectrum. Um, It hasn't been officially recognized by the National Rosacea Society. Uh, But here they're going to present this case of rosacea fulminans with concomitant herpes infection, which they named rosacea fulminans herpeticum. Their patient was a 34-year-old woman who had papulopostular rosacea and recurrent herpes labialis. She had an exuberant facial eruption with painful eroded erythematous papula nodules and pustules that developed over the past two weeks. She had no history of atopy or allergic contact dermatitis. Before the onset of the rosacea fulminans, she experienced facial peeling and irritation and was initially evaluated in urgent care center and started on doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily for one week with mild improvement. Her rash had drastically worsened after alcohol consumption and at that time she described diffuse erythema with multiple papulopustular nodules all over the face and she failed empiric treatment with topical triamcinolone 0.1% and pimacrolimus 1% cream after the course of doxycycline. So then she came in uh, to these uh, lovely physicians two weeks after symptom onset and she had noticed just very mild improvement related to the doxycycline but at presentation she had diffuse background erythema of the face with overlying erosions with scalloped borders scalloped borders is a buzzword for herpes so if you see scalloped borders you gotta think herps this is why i avoid scalloped potatoes yeah gross (laughs) you've ruined them forever for me i say they were already bad so they did do a viral polymerase chain reaction that was positive for HSV1. And so she was started on valacyclovir one gram thrice daily. They wrote it that way, which I loved. As it well made as- me think of Randy. Rest in I peace. I know. Oh. Randy um, Atkins was a colleague of ours who 
was taken too early from this world by cancer, and we think of him often. He was a wonderful. But he person. loved the word thrice. He did. He loved to say thrice. So thrice daily, as well as a prednisone taper, which hopefully didn't give her any problems with gastrointestinal bleedings. Ha <laughs> ha. Call back. Um, she had significant improvement three weeks after starting that regimen. So rosacea fulminans usually has an explosive clinical course with progression of centrofacial plaques interconnecting sinuses within one to two weeks. The onset's often occurring after a trigger such as a hormonal shift like pregnancy, emotional stress, medications, or as in this case, alcohol consumption. And the alcohol consumption can do that by altering as another callback to our previous article, the estrogen um, sort of homeostatic pathways. So you end up with hormonal fluctuation. It doesn't also have- increases flushing, which is known to be a trigger for rosacea. That's true. And probably a little bit of like reperfusion, reactive oxygen species. There's all sorts of things happening here. So this um, can be distinguished from severe acne because it will lack comedones. So about 92% of rosacea fulminans occurs in women, and about 80% report a previous history of flushing or rosacea. So this is a kind of extremely inflammatory variant of rosacea. When you treat it, usually you have to use some combination of systemic corticosteroids and or isotretinoin. If you withdraw the steroids too quickly, the patients can flare. So a slow taper over two to three weeks is advised. Oral antibiotics, tetracyclines, macrolides, and dapsone have been used, but are often not effective as monotherapy. And erythromycin is preferred for pregnant patients, but is rarely successful. So in those patients, they noted that isotretinone is typically initiated after delivery to facilitate the resolution of these patients. And isotretinoin is not as complicated after delivery, of course, as it is beforehand. Rosacea fulminans herpeticum hadn't previously been reported in the literature. They made a nice distinction that I don't think I'd actually realized the nuance of before, where they say that, you know, Kaposi's varicelliform eruption, which we all know and love, well-documented phenomenon that refers to disseminated cutaneous infection, not just of HSV-1 or 2, but also of potentially Coxsackie virus A16, or vaccinia virus in association with an underlying dermatosis. So Kaposi's varicelliform eruption is a broader term than eczema herpeticum, which is specific to atopic dermatitis with superimposed HSV. So basically all eczema herpetiformis is a subtype of Kaposi's varicelliform eruption, but not all Kaposi's varicelliform eruption is eczema herpeticum. There are other types, including sometimes called eczema coxsackium. When you get that dissemination of coxsackie virus, through the um, pre-existing dermatosis or eczema vaccinatum when you have that happen with vaccinia virus. So I thought that was kind of a cool distinction to make and that both of these have been reported in patients with inflammatory skin diseases, psoriasis, keratosis, follicularis, bullous pemphigoid, contact derm, or second-degree burns, or skin grafts. Barrier impairment is the greatest risk factor for developing any kind of disseminated herpetiform or other viral infection in a skin condition. And because of the pervasiveness of latent HSV infection, recognizing those at risk is really important. HSV-1 is relatively prevalent amongst young, young women, uh, especially the, which is the population usually affected by rosacea fulminans. It's been reported in about 50% of 18 to 24-year-old women and gets up to 90% in both men and women over the age of 70 in the United States. So that is potentially something that could cause the presentation of rosacea fulminans, so something to look out for. I remember you once talking to us in clinic about a faculty member you had who had some kind of accent and you overheard him talking on the phone and he was, good news, it's herpes. No, don't worry. Everybody has herpes. <laughs> yes. Yep. Everyone has herpes. It's like a kind of fun little thing we throw around in my residency program as an inside joke. And you know, 
according to this literature, he's just about right. 90% of adults over the age of 70, almost everyone has herpes. So apparently rosacea fulminans is also called pyoderma facial. So if you remember learning about that condition in residency or something, I think it sounds like rosacea fulminans is now the proper nomenclature since it's thought to be a variant of rosacea. And I think I've noticed that one, my favorite sorts of case reports are those that remind me of something that I think I should know, but just don't see very often. Like what is rosacea fulminans and what's the pathogenesis of lichen planus? And then also do something new like, Hey, dupilumab can work or here it is with superimposed herpes infections. So I thought this was a nice description of this rosacea fulminans herpeticum entity, but also a nice little reminder for me of what the heck is rosacea fulminans. I think that's great. And, you know, you'll see this sometimes present acutely in pregnant women um, or women who've been started on hormonal therapy. And it's quite catastrophic when it occurs. It's painful. It's disfiguring. It is something that kind of needs urgent medical attention. And if you add to that mixed herpes, oh, Lord, that's a that's a three alarm fire. So I'm glad that they brought um, some awareness to this possibility. And remember that it can look a lot like acne. It used to be thought to be on the spectrum of acne. So it can you know, it, we're used to thinking of rosacea as more erythema and so on, but it can look like it's got a lot of papules and kind of looks like acne, but no comedones. All right, that's what we've got time for today, friends. Thanks for hanging out with us. Today we learned that even short courses of systemic steroids in kids can lead to increased risk for various things. We learned that all the lifestyle modifications that are good for the rest of your health are also good for your skin. We learned that dupilumab could potentially treat lichen planus. We learned that you might be able to identify the type of species of your tinea capitis infective organism with dermoscopy and look really smart. We reaffirmed our belief that propranolol is good for hemangiomas, and we learned about rosacea fulminans and how it could potentially be super infected with herpes. But everybody has herpes. <laughs> thanks to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast, and thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Thanks also to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps our social media accounts moving. Yes, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archive and is also a good way to get in touch with us. And of course, thanks to you listeners for spending some time with us today. We always love hanging out with you, and we'll see you next time.